Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I am the president and professor of Old Testament here, and I'm joined by my fellow Old Testament colleague, Dr. Peter Lee, who's also a dean of students on this campus. Dr. Paul Jean, instructor in New Testament and senior pastor at New City Presbyterian Church here in the D.C. area. Dr. Tommy Keene, professor of New Testament and academic dean here at this campus. And Dr. Grace Sutanto, professor of systematic theology. And we are continuing this week in our discussion uh, surrounding the Apostles' Creed, and we're getting near the end. We only have, I think, about three more articles of the Creed to get to. And today we are doing the second part of the section under the Holy Spirit, which is this idea of the communion of saints. This is the next in line after the Holy Catholic Church. And so we're continuing on now with what really is kind of an interesting, you know, an interesting additional point. I think for some Protestants, they might even say, why why this extra point? Why say communion of saints after saying Catholic Church? What what more are we adding to the creed? So let's let's talk about that a little bit, and let's start it off with you, Doctor Sutanto. What what do we need to be thinking about when we think about the communion of saints? Well, interestingly enough, the first thing that comes to my mind is the distinctly Protestant doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. The idea that every single one of us, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have equal access to his gifts, you have equal access to his spirit, you have communion with God through Christ. So there isn't a hierarchy, right, of professional clergymen on the one side and then just regular members on the other side with those in the clergy having higher access to God or something like that. But rather everyone, if you confess one Lord, you have equal access by the spirit because you couldn't have confessed the Lordship of Jesus Christ unless the spirit was in you. And interestingly enough, when you turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, as I just did as we were starting out this podcast, you know, that's exactly the two things that the Heidelberg Catechism noted here on this clause of the communion of the saints. First of all, that every believer all share in the person of Jesus Christ. Everyone has a communion with him. Everyone has the spirits of Jesus Christ within them. And hence, we have fellowship with God. And secondly, that we have responsibilities and gifts, all of us, by virtue of these things. We can't just leave the work of ministry to just, you know, the priest or something like that. And then he's just representing every single one of us as those in the pew dependent upon the representational work of the priest and the sacraments, but rather all of us can participate in the work of the church and all of us as responsibilities. And so the pastor does have a responsibility, but he's really a steward. He's a servant of God. And all of us are, are called as the church to participate together happily and joyfully in the task of proclaiming Christ. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Like in Romans, I think of Romans chapter 12, where Paul is speaking to the Roman church, and he used that language of priesthood, or really it's the language of sacrifice, but he he directs it towards all Christians. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. And it's interesting where in the New Testament, you find that temple language, that priestly language, it is directed at the whole of the church, kind of, as you say, removing this, this notion of sort of a hierarchy of believers or some who are closer than some who are farther away, you know, that you find in some other traditions. Well, you, you talked about, you mentioned, Gray, communion and 
this idea of communion or union with Christ. And so I think that's got to be considered a key aspect of this. Communion is not something that believers merely hold with each other. This is something that we hold in Christ. And so, Tommy, can you unpack that a little bit? What is, how, how is the, how is the communion of saints a communion of the saints with their Lord Jesus Christ? This is kind of a, a theological corollary to what Gray was saying about the priesthood of all believers. Why is that true? Why is there not some sort of hierarchy or higher ranking? And Acts is a really great book to go to here, not only because we find that great moment in the book of Pentecost, wherein uh, the Spirit is poured out upon the New Testament people, the New Covenant people of God, but the church is actually kind of wrestling with that throughout Acts. They the church is kind of coming to appreciate the implications of Pentecost. And one of those implications is that all those who have received the spirit are full citizens in the kingdom of God. They're full recipients of the eschatological blessings that are in, in Christ Jesus. There's no higher order. There's no second blessing. They have all equally received that blessing, which is the blessing of Joel uh, prophesied in the book of Joel that um, your sons and daughters will prophesy your you know, dream dreams, et cetera, that we're all have that kind of place before God as, as servants and therefore a unique call. And it'd be interesting to talk about that too. I wonder if, if we'll get to that as well. The, the other side of the coin is that we're equally called to serve one another in our unique spiritual gifts. Tommy, great. I think, you know, those are such great things uh, you were talking about in terms of the priesthood of all believers. Uh, it, it did remind me uh, a lot of the non-hierarchy structure in in that statement of some of the works like uh, like our old friend Chad Van Dixhorn wrote in his book on God and, uh, God's Ambassadors, the the pastoral preaching ministry of the um, of the Westminster Assembly men and how uh, not just great theologians were they were, but great pastors they were, and how they wanted to minister to people who were ill and sick at homes, and how a lot of their their leaderships wouldn't allow them to go and to visit those who were sick because they didn't want them to get sick and thus potentially die. Illnesses back then, as you know, were were not quite as uh, the mortality was much higher. They didn't see themselves as better. They wanted to still do their pastoral duties and. And they were prohibited from doing that, uh, and it's it's such a testament to the, you know, the spirit of reformed pastoral ministry and how uh, a pastor who really embraces this idea of the communion of saints doesn't see himself as as a superior, but as a servant, and 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 how the history of our reform movement sees men who see themselves as no better. They they want to do their work, and they want to do it whole, wholeheartedly. I did some reading in Calvin uh, in his uh, some biography uh, biographical work on Calvin, and Calvin had the same thing. He wanted to visit people uh, it, uh, who were ill and dying, and uh, it was the uh, city uh, fathers uh, that prohibited from him doing that. They realized they had a star here in Calvin. They didn't want to put him at risk, but Calvin just thought he isn't any better. He he really felt he needed to do his work and felt strongly about it. And he was prohibited. He wasn't allowed to visit those who were sick. And I just thought, you know, that that's an unfortunate part of a reform theology that I think people don't grasp. The, our tradition is filled with great pastors who 
of who have embraced this statement in our creed, didn't see themselves as better, and really wanted to serve God's people. And, you know, every time I think about it, it just inspires me to want to be better as a professor, as a pastor as well. Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything that's been said so far, but I do sometimes wonder if this idea that um, we're all, you know, we all belong to the priesthood poses the danger of losing, you know, the aspects of the New Testament that do distinguish the office of pastor. And, you know, the Bible does say that uh, those who teach are worthy of double honor. Of course, I have a very vested interest here because I'm a pastor, but no, I, I I think it's, I, I agree with everything that's being said here. And, um, but sometimes I think one liability, which, you know, it's just part of living in the fallen world is there is a place for honoring those um, in authority. And I, I'm not talking even about financial remuneration, but um, for instance, all interpretations are not equally valid. I think that could be uh, a liability an unintended consequence from uh, holding to this. And so that's just something I was thinking about even as we were talking. I think that's really interesting in terms of even in Protestant circles, there, there is this tension you have to hold between everyone is, you know, the priesthood of all believers and yet this unique role that, uh, that you see show up in places like the pastoral epistles where Paul talks about you know, the pastor as almost like a, a protector or some kind of like, a, a, you know, a shield. He keeps using this language of protecting the thing with which we have been entrusted. And, and it, everyone's been entrusted with it. The whole church has been entrusted with it. And yet the pa- pastor has this unique role of protecting the thing that has been entrusted from vain, you know, speculative you know, genealogies and belief systems and that kind of thing. And so there is this sense in which there's this unique call right? That is the pastoral call or the shepherd's call. And yet it also is in a way sort of a focus of what the call of the whole church is, which is the priesthood, you know, the priesthood of all believers, um, being in sharing in that communion with Christ. I think it's important to distinguish like the priesthood, a good doctrine, robust doctrine of the priesthood of all believers from a more secularized good as folks or I'm a special snowflake kind of idea. That that's not what we're saying. Um, the reform doctrine is, of course, it, Paul uses that that language of the body, knit that that's knit together. That each member of the body does its part. Um, and and it's Ephesians four, right? And it goes back to the beginning of the discussion. You know, Jesus uh, gives gifts to uh, men, namely the Spirit, is poured out upon us to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. That's what we mean, is that each part does service to the whole, that each, we need each other. Um, And pastorally, I think this is really important. One of the, you know, challenges is, especially nowadays is, you know, people that just feel disillusioned by church, disillusioned by the communion of saints, don't want to participate anymore. They've been wounded too, too badly. And that's a real thing. And it, it, we need to pastorally think about that. But the call for communion isn't just how do I benefit from church? It's not just that you need the church. We, we should say that, but it's also the church needs you. 
you have been given particular gifts by the Lord to serve the body. I think that's really helpful to note, Tommy. And, you know, the pastor can't do everything. And I think the response to, to Paul as well, I wonder if the emphasis between these two tensions that the pastor has unique calling, he's a shepherd of the flock, he has unique responsibilities, he is worthy of double honor on the one hand, and everybody shares in the same communion of the spirit, everybody has responsibilities and gifts that they need to joyfully exercise, right? These two poles, I wonder if sometimes context could help us decide what is needed to be emphasized, right? Because I think coming from an Asian perspective, ministering in Jakarta, Indonesia, where there's lots of churches here who treat the pastor as a kind of Confucianist ubermensch, where he could do everything. He is the authority. He's the strong man. And all the members have to do is pay money uh, to the church. And that's really all their participation is because he is, he's, you know, the one that everybody looks to to complete everything. I remember one vivid memory where I was teaching a class in, in a seminary in, in Indonesia. And, you know, I said that the elders of the church need to be plural. There has to be plurality of elders. And the pastors don't do everything. The deacons have to do things with regard to the body and material needs. The pastors, their focus is on the word and the sacraments, right? And literally, a couple of students raise up their hands and they're like, is this a new model of ministry? Is this a, a, a novel way of doing you know, ministry? And I was thinking to myself, no, this is just historic Presbyterianism. This has been around for a long time, right? And uh, But to them, their whole worldview and perspective is, the pastor does everything and there should be one person in charge. And if he needs help, that means he's weak. That means he's not worthy of respect and authority. And in that sort of context, my eyes always light up for the priesthood of all believers and distinguishing therefore the pastor from the kind of Confucianist sage wise man that I think lots of, of these communities look up to. I just wonder what, what do you all think of that? I think in the West, perhaps we do have to emphasize the unique role of the pastor and the sanctity of his office there. I, you know, I think it's a really good point. I think in some contexts that's right, and uh, particularly in places where perhaps the the pastor isn't very well known, maybe it's a smaller church. Um, I think you definitely have to emphasize that unique calling and the role that they have. I think sort of at a macro level in the Western church, though, we, we have some similar dynamics in the sense of, you know, particularly in, in, in recent reformed movements of the last 20 years, there's this push towards sort of celebrity or celebritizing, if I could coin a phrase, um, of, of pastors where there's kind of a, a small group of individuals who are considered sort of the, the super pastor, right? And there's sort of a hierarchy in your local pastor who may not have the same speaking, public speaking skills, or maybe they even do. They just haven't, you know, moved their career and adjusted their career in that direction. You know, there can be this sense of like, well, my my local pastor says this, but the real guys, the real deal is what's happening down the street at the conference or something like that. And I think that you, there can slip in a kind of unintended hierarchicalism, right? There's sort of an unintended Romish view of the pastorate that we have to be careful of, right? Because uh, that's actually not the theology that we hold. So I think you can have some similar dynamics. It just shows up in a different way. Yeah, uh, co corresponding to that, e even in, in some good Protestant circles, I found I found tempted in this way too that there's this attitude that you know everything is spiritual. We are worldview thinkers, so everything is connected together, and therefore the pastor needs to be an expert on everything. And any area of my life 
that is an area of my life in which my pastor should speak. And while appreciating some aspects of that and, and the interconnectedness of our all of our ideas, we need to remember the pastor's not an expert on everything. And there are things that you are going to be asked as a pastor for which the best answer is probably like, I, I don't know, ask somebody else. But there, I do think that there is that idea, one that we tend to reinforce that the pastor can do it all and is the kind of, as Greg put it, the, the sage to whom you can go. And we fall into that pattern as well and, and should resist it. Our authority is a spiritual authority. I remember yeah. someone talking about Tim Keller's Center Church, which I think is an excellent book and it's a great resource. And also one pastor reading it being like, I couldn't possibly do all of these things. And, you know, of course, we're also, we're, we're not all Tim Keller. Um, but at the same time too, you know, I, th there's a sense in which I always read that book as here are all the different things a pastor can be involved in, but given your context, you may be involved in one thing or another in different ways. Um, so you have to kind of understand it as a, as, as what it is, as a reference book, you know, and I would actually say probably over the course of a pastor's life at different phases, they will be involved in a variety of different aspects of ministry and work and life. But to your point, Tom, you're absolutely right. I mean, we can't, you can't put all of that on the pastor's shoulders at any given time. And I think that's sometimes what you see happen now is that someone walks in, they have this expectation of the pastor being able to speak on any issue or, you know, or, 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 or you know, basically be knowledgeable of any concept, you know, sort of on the fly. And, and that's just something that's not, that's not possible. It's not humanly possible, even for Tim Keller. As an aside, I've always thought about thinking, you know, I've always thought, thought about writing an article called The Pastor as an Honor Token in an Asian context, because we talk about tokenisms and being tokenized in the States with regard to racial issues. And it's amazing to me how pastors are invited to literally every social event, as long as it makes that family look good, because they have this such a high and exalted view of the pastor. So they're invited to housewarmings, they're invited to vacations because then the, the family can say I've, I've paid for my pastor's vacation and that makes me look good and there's there's an honor there my pastor approves of my family so pastoral visitations could become very complicated in that sort of context because we don't know whether or not you're really visiting because there's a need or because they want to be seen to be with the pastor and um normally they you know homes are really only opened up if there's a there's an opportunity to show that the family is morally righteous, that, that the pastor can be seen to be in the home in some way and fashion. So it becomes really complicated in that sense. And I think that sense of the priesthood of all believers, the responsibility of everyone to, to participate is really key here. Yeah, that reminds me of when I used to work in more Asian contexts. I had just graduated from seminary and you might say it was very, you know, typical seminary theology <laughs> committed. And um, I never knew really what to make of being invited to people's homes when they had just purchased their homes and being asked to bless their home or if they had just opened a business, it was very important that I showed up and I blessed the business or uh, in Korean tradition, that's, um, uh, you know, when a child turns one, there's a huge birthday. And if I did not make it, I mean, it would, it would be problematic to state the least, right? And so I think that I viewed this more as a secondary issue and you might say I, I played along, but I was always very uh, fascinated that 
somehow there was tremendous hope uh, placed in the prayer that I would give to a brand new home, brand new business. And uh, it's, um, and it just shows us that it's hard to really dissociate um, our, you might say, cultural, uh, ethnic views and Christianity, which is, by the way, I think one of the reasons why um, one of the values of multi-ethnic church is that when you are in a setting with people from you know, just different backgrounds, you actually do have a context for understanding which of your practices are just unique to your culture and upbringing and which actually align with the Bible. So do you feel like you all, I mean, I'm just thinking of Paul and, and Gray as you're talking about this. Do you feel like you all need to discern when invited to things, whether or not this is a sort of a superstitious, as you said, tokenization versus like a real offer of fellowship or something like that, or maybe fulfilling your role as, you know, an ordained pastor. This is something you kind of have to do, you know? Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I have to think all the time, especially when I know in other contexts where a member of our church would get in trouble by their family because they told me or another pastor something that we're not supposed to know that makes the family look bad. Right. So this is why, again, social visitations are so complicated, because if people invite you to their homes, as, especially in the context of the Chinese and Asian context, especially, it's not to be like hospitable. It's, it's normally to, to well, it is to be hospitable, but there's there's an honor value to that. Uh, pastoral visitations on a weekly basis is, is almost never done just because it's kind of awkward to just kind of show up and to ask, hey, can I come into your home? Because they might not feel like they're ready to present themselves to you. And there's this awkward dance that sometimes we have to, to, to go around. And sometimes, you know, how you know if you're being socially tokenized or honorably, honorably tokenized is if you come and you preach a sermon that hits at particular sins that actually the family is struggling with, then you might never be invited back, right? Because then suddenly the family feels challenged by your presence. But you're there just to make them look good. Just say things that would actually imply that the family morally lives up to the things that you're saying in the sermon. So... Part of what comes to my mind when we think about priesthood of all believers is, is 1 Peter 2, verse 9, that we're called a holy nation, right? That we're, we're not to be our nationality first. We have to distinguish between the gospel's kingdom and our nationality and the cultures therein, right? That, that the gospel produces a different culture altogether that transcends and transforms all the different cultures. So you're not an American first, but a Christian first, and an American second. You're not an Indonesian first, but a Christian first. That's incredibly important, and that helps us be self-critical, as you were saying, Scott, you know, of our own cultures here. But at the same time, seek to accommodate things where we can in order so that we can also subvert and challenge those aspects of culture that are not biblical. Well, so we have these different metaphors. We have these different images in the Bible to talk about the the church and the communion of saints. We've already touched on a few of them. There's members of a body. And the head is Christ, right? That's a common phrase. You have this idea of the bride. We are, this is how I argue, this is covenantal language. It shows up throughout the Old and New Testament. But we're the bride. And so we're all united in our, in our marriage that is to Christ. We are branches on the vine that is Christ. John 15, he's the true vine. And we're all branches. Of course, that's a great Old Testament metaphor for the people of God throughout the Old Testament. And then here Jesus comes along and says, I'm the true vine and everyone's connected to me. And 
um, or everyone who's, who's in this, this communion is connected to me. So there, there are these images that, that show up. Temple is another one that we've, we've talked about uh, already. But this again, this idea that we are all united to one another, no matter where we're from, you know, whether, no matter what language we speak, no matter what our time, whether we were agrarian, agrarian peasants living in the medieval period or industrialized uh, Westerners or, um, you know, information technology <laughs> contemporaries, you know, all of us are a part of this, this one communion that is in unity or in union with Jesus Christ. And I think that idea that, you know, that you were unpacking earlier, Tommy, is, is really kind of this crucial idea that that's how we're all in communion. That's how we're all a part of this body. It's not just because of a shared creed. Now, I don't want to undermine the creed, obviously, but it's not just shared creed. It's not just shared destiny of, the, of that we're all ending up in the same place. But there really is the spiritual DNA that is shared across the church and across, uh, you know, across the communion of saints. Yeah, and um, Gray mentioned First Peter two, and I think that's a really important passage for this. Uh, and, and to add another analogy to your to your list, there, uh, we are a kingdom of priests, uh, and that's really informative because it helps us understand our purpose relative both to one another and to the rest of the world. What does a priest do? A priest is uh, mediates God, uh, mediates man to God. Um, prophets mediate God to man, priests mediate man uh, to God. And that's what we are to be to one another, that in all my gifts and all my calling, whatever that might be, whether it's pastor, worship leader, tech guy, you know, microphone man, whatever it might be, that I do that as a way of bringing um, man to God both those most importantly the brethren you know my sisters my brothers who are united to christ by faith through the holy spirit but then also to the world we're a kingdom of priests like israel to the world and we are to be the place of god's presence here as the world strives to you know do the will of god on earth as it is in heaven so that language is really informative to our purpose and and it helps me Kind of think about my role in, in the church. I am not a special snowflake. I am a brick in the temple. That That's what I am. I'm a brick. And my job is to be a, the best brick that I can be supporting the other bricks uh, a, a, around the wall. Tommy, you're the best. <laughs> Just laughing. <laughs> I'm not a special snowflake, but I am a brick. That, I'm a brick. I think that should be the title of this podcast. <laughs> You're not a snowflake, you're a brick. So. All in all, you're just another brick in the wall. <laughs> that, could, that could be it. Channeling, channeling Pink Floyd. Any wrap up? One, one recommended reading would be Kevin Van Hooser's From Babel to Pentecost. It's, it's on Protestantism and Please of all believers, biblical interpretation to this kind of issues, the five solos, I believe, on the issue of biblical interpretation. So useful book. What's the best resource for Gaffin on union with Christ? That's actually a sad 
I have no great answer to that. Yeah. It's like asking, what's my, Meredith Klein's best book on the Holy Spirit? There's not like a spot. Yeah. It's one of the things Howard and I wanted to do was do like a summary article of of that idea. But um, I, I would say by faith, not by sight is probably the best go-to resource. There's also a series of lectures that Gaffin gave um, back in 2005, but it's called the mystery of union with Christ and it's at a church. So it's got a church audience that I, I remember listening to and finding it very accessible while also being thorough in unpacking this theology of our union with Christ. Perspectives on Pentecost is worth mentioning for the spiritual gifts kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. oh, I love that book. All right, brothers, thanks for this conversation about our communion, the communion which we all share. And it's not just with the Christians living today, but it's all of God's people in all of time. And there's this kind of amazing immediacy to that, isn't it? That, there, that we are all a part of the communion of saints. And when we come and worship before the Lord, we're worshiping not just with our families or our congregations, but we're worshiping with the communion of saints. And we get this vision, the, you know, a, a bit of a glimpse of, of the beatific vision when we get to come together and worship in that way. I love how Paul puts it in Ephesians 4 when he talks about how we are to be rooted in this identity as being a part of this larger communion. And even kind of describes the Christian life as, as a kind of growing, growing into the body of Christ that we are all a part of. And he talks about how we, we should no longer, this is Ephesians 4, 14, no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, but instead, verse 15, jumping ahead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. And I, and I love this idea of the communion of saints, of the body of Christ as sort of the model of the Christian life as we're being conformed to the body of Christ, conformed to the church. And um, it's a beautiful notion. It's one that, that I'm deeply encouraged by, and it's just been great to have a chance to discuss this with you all this morning. I look forward to talking about the Apostles' Creed in the weeks ahead and being back with everyone next week. Until then, take care. On a side note, my wife was listening to Gaffin lectures and she said, Gaffin has made me a Gaffan. Get it? <laughs> bad, bad pun. She's a fan of Gaffin, so she's a that's Gaffan. Good. Yeah, that's good. Thanks for walking through, through that, Gray. <laughs> Tommy, that reflects um, how Gray uh, uh, views our intellectual uh, ability. Right. Right. <laughs> he's, he's like, listen, guys, it's a plan. This is how it works. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Actually, oh, even, oh. even more so, he thought they're they're Thank really going to like this one. This will be this is right at their level. <laughs> I, I like this. <laughs>
<laughs> and Dita said, I've got a joke that I think your friends will, will be able to get. So let's. <laughs> let's not do it then. <laughs> okay, never mind. Forget all that. I'm, I'm <laughs> All right, we. I need to. I need to land this plane after this long <laughs> lacuna. <laughs> okay.